us at our elder retreat. And uh, that was kind of an agonizing decision that we worked through. But really, as I listened to the guys talk, the bottom line for that decision last week was that our elders couldn't bear the thought of being the source of harm for you. Um, so we decided to go back online last week to protect you from us. So um, that's, that's really why I did that. But um, tests all came back negative. Nobody had any symptoms. Thanks be to God. We're rejoicing and thankful to be back with you who could be here today and um, back with those of you who are online as well. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Find your way there. In our passage today, we find Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. Um, the road to Jerusalem, you could also call it the road to discipleship. Um, it is just one turn or two um, away from the cross. And to make good sense out of the conversation that we're listening in on today, I, we, I wanna back up a little bit and consider the setting for what's about to unfold um, remember how Jesus defined discipleship in chapter 8. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is telling us and all who would follow him that the way of discipleship is the way of suffering and sacrifice. This road that they are on and we are on leads to the cross and along this discipleship road, Jesus has been giving strong warnings to his disciples, warnings about marriage and divorce, warnings about the soul hazards of wealth. And now in our passage, it'll be the second time in just two pages of our Bibles that he's going to take aim at our ambition. Um, the temptation for us when we hear this kind of strong discipleship teaching from Jesus is to justify our embracing of the very things Jesus so strongly warns us against. So we will explain why my pursuit of divorce is different, how my wealth is really not all that dangerous, and why my ambition is so very noble. Now admittedly, all of Jesus' hard discipleship teachings around these subjects are nuanced in other scriptures in very important ways. Um, but to run there first, to run to the nuances about marriage and divorce, the nuances about wealth, the nuances about our ambition, without first sitting under the weight of Jesus' call to carry our cross in these matters, is truly soul hazardous. And so, as we look at yet another challenging teaching from Jesus for disciples, um, I'd like to just pray for us that we would receive it with all of its power um, today. So bow with me real briefly. Jesus, you have told us that if we would come after you, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. So today, let us receive your strong words as for our good, as the way to follow. Help us now by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen. All right. So it's against this discipleship backdrop that 
our passage in Mark 10 begins with what's really a graphic and remarkably detailed prediction of Jesus' death. Um, It's the third time Jesus and the final time Jesus has predicted his death in Mark. Start in verse 32 with me. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and, and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So at this point, they are nearing, likely nearing the city of Jericho, which is just one day's journey from Jerusalem. The very next passage in Mark is Jesus' triumphal entry into that city on Palm Sunday. That's the week of his crucifixion. We are drawing near to the cross. And so it's up against this explicit prediction of great suffering and gruesome death by Jesus, the one that they are following, that two of his disciples now approach him with a question that takes an almost unbelievable turn in light of what Jesus just taught and just predicted. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now the disconnect between what Jesus just taught and predicted with what the disciples are now asking is beyond troubling. How can such selfish posturing follow right on the heels of this great pronouncement of willing, sacrificial love? This is like finding out that your parents have terminal cancer and the first thing out of your mouth is about what piece of furniture you'll get in the inheritance. Um, Professor David Garland says that while Jesus is talking about all he's about to give, the disciples come with a shopping list of all they want to get. But, but to their credit, they did give Jesus the seat of honor, right? He's in the middle. That's the seat of honor. And they want to honor Jesus while honoring themselves, right? But that's not how discipleship to Jesus works. Exalting Jesus is not a means to exalting me. And though the disciples acknowledge his glory, it is tainted by their own ambition and pursuit of their own glory. Dave Harvey wrote a helpful book called Rescuing Ambition. And in it, he humorously writes this way. He says, I mentioned my my struggle with the wrong kinds of ambition. I call them Dave-bitions. So I'm often, often I'm Dave-bitious. I assume that my family would work much better if they all majored in Daveology. Friendships work best if they have a Davetistic bent. I believe many of life's understandings could be cleared up with just a few Davological insights. And overall, it would be a better place if we could just celebrate an annual Davetoberfest. I guess you could call me a Davaholic. He says, there, I've said it. I feel so much better. Right? 
James and John are coming when the other 10 are not around to get the upper hand. They've got a plan. It's a shrewd one, a kind of power play to get the upper hand on the remaining 10 disciples. And if greatness is truly about me being above you, then this plan makes good sense if that's what greatness truly is. But notice what begins to happen as James and John pursue their kind of greatness, trying to beat out the other ten disciples. Their brothers now come, become competitors to be defeated. Matt Woodley says that the disciples have turned their community into a vicious episode of survivor, vying to form alliances and stay on the island while they vote someone else off. And so in verse 38, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. So Jesus here indicates they don't understand two things. They don't understand what true greatness is, and they don't understand what true greatness costs. See, the language of the cup and the baptism here, it's the language of suffering. And I'm not sure James and John get this, that they understand that Jesus is talking about suffering. Their response is too eager. Um, They should have gotten it. Jesus just explained what the cup of suffering he would drink from would look like, right? He said, they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It's hard to imagine him being any clearer. Now, some have noticed a similarity between the brothers' language. We want to be on your left and right with language that comes up just in a couple pages in chapter 15 when Jesus is on the cross and the people who are on his left and right are also nailed to crosses. They're the thieves. And if James and John had seen that coming, I doubt they would have been so eager to fill those seats. Jesus defers the brothers' request And he indicates the Father has already secured these positions, right? So their plan failed, and they went to all that trouble, and the positions are already filled, it turns out. So to make matters worse, the rest of the disciples find out. And evidently, James and John weren't as discreet about their power play as they should have been. Verse 41, when the ten heard about it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So... No doubt, they are upset that their brothers would do such a thing. And maybe they're upset that they didn't think of it first. So this is an ongoing debate with the 12. Who's the greatest? Jesus, back just a page earlier in chapter 9, broke up a dispute. Uh, Who is the greatest? So once again, Jesus calls them together and explains that there's something greater than being the greatest. And he does it by showing them what true greatness is not. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. This kind of leadership was evidently the prevailing leadership model in Jesus' day. But 
Professor D.A. Carson points out that that expression, lord it over, can give a false impression. He says Jesus is not criticizing the abuse of power here because the translation could just be they exercise lordship over. The problem is about the very greater than structures themselves, not just the abuse of those structures. See, greatness, as Jesus talks about it, is not about attaining a position over someone. It's not about being better than or more important than or more powerful than. It's not about being president or quarterback or queen. Now, that may be greatness in the eyes of men, but it is decidedly not greatness in the eyes of God. Something greater than greatness is here. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So true greatness is not about positions of power or of domination. It's about a posture, Jesus says, of serving. Because true greatness is not about exalting me. It's about serving you. And Jesus' language is severe, I think, here. He's not just giving you a new pathway to be number one better than everybody else. He's asking you you, to lay that dream aside and become the least important person in the room, to become a slave of all. Something greater than greatness is being offered to us here, being required of us here. See, there's no room for competitive or comparative greatness in Jesus' teaching. There's only room for humble service. And the the King James Version brings an important insight. Look at it carefully. It's up on the screen for you. It says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Did you catch that? Whoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister. And what Jesus is saying is that the minister is the greatest, right? The pastor is the greatest. You you following me? I love the King James Version. It's just so faithful to me. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind, but it should be the case, shouldn't it? Your pastor should be the servant of all, and since I know him personally, I know he would welcome your prayers in this matter. Minister here, it doesn't really mean pastor specifically. It's, it's like a household servant. Um, it could be used of someone who waits on tables, um, an ancient busboy. Jesus is calling you to serve like a busboy. And there's more. The next verse, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And slave has been aptly defined in Jesus' time as the non-person who has no rights or existence of his own, who exists solely for others. Who exists solely for others. Jesus is calling you to be a slave of all everywhere you go, in every room you enter. What does that look like? Well, there are workers here, right? Employees, coworkers, bosses. What makes a worker great? Being more concerned about serving his coworkers than getting to a position where they will serve him or her? Is that your reputation where you work? 
A servant who puts your coworkers' interests above your own? Are you a ladder climber or a ladder holder? You know, there's spouses here. What makes a spouse great? Think about homecoming, okay? Not like the dance, but like at the end of the day, homecoming. When, when our spouse comes home or when we come home at the end of the day, we want to be served just a little bit to be relieved from whatever's been going on at the day in the home or outside the home, just a little bit. Perhaps greatness means serving at homecoming each night. And that may involve toilets and trash and children and actual conversation where you listen and talk. What's at the forefront of your mind when you come home or when your spouse does? Serving her? Serving him? There are kids here. Makes a kid great. Um, you know, my parents have gone to be with the Lord, uh, but... I honestly think if you'd ask my parents, and it's safe now because they're not here anymore, uh, was Larry a great kid? I think my parents would have said yes, mostly because I had a really mischievous older brother who set the bar really low, right? <laughs> um, but you know, they would have said, yeah, you know, he was a, he was a good He's a good student. He got into a reputable profession. He was an engineer and a pastor. Um, yeah, he was a good kid. But by Jesus' definition of great, I fell horribly short because in my youth, I was never very good at serving my folks, even though they served me endlessly. I, honestly, I'm not sure it ever even crossed my mind that I should serve them. And so, if you're still living at home with your folks, serve your folks. While you still have a chance, it may not be very cool, but you will become great in the eyes of God. And don't settle for cool if you can be great, right? This is the way, okay? the way of discipleship to Jesus. So Jesus is messing with our ambitions for greatness, to put it mildly. But I don't think he's asking us to be ambitionless in the sense that we have no passion, no desire, no drive, no longing, just a, just a passing glance at the life of the Apostle Paul assures us that's not the case. Right? He's not calling us to a life of indifference and mediocrity. You could call it a life of meh. Okay? That's not what he's calling us to. But he's also decidedly not calling us to a life of me. a life of self-exaltation over others. So be forewarned, ambition for many of us is our kryptonite. I know it is for me. Coddle it at your own peril. Sinclair Ferguson is a pastor and he wrote something interesting about Christian contentment, but it's really about Christian ambition. He says, Christian contentment or ambition is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with a provision he is pleased to make. That's our ambition. 
And this kind of thinking finds its expression in a beautiful prayer, um, the Wesleyan Covenant prayer. And it goes like this, I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Is that your ambition? Can you pray like that? Do you pray like that? See, the greatness, so, so this is just a reality. The greatness of a servant will likely cost you greatness before men. Now, that's not always the case. There are exceptions. We all know some. Um, maybe a, a classic would be Mother Teresa, a great servant who became great in the eyes of, of, of many. So, but here's the question. Um, does anybody know who took her place? Anybody know who took over Mother Teresa's ministry when she died? Exactly. Nobody knows the name of that servant. On Discipleship Road, you may end up, very well end up serving those you hoped would serve you. Jesus, after all, would gird himself with a towel and wash his friend's feet. And then he would turn to his disciples and he said, you also should wash one another's feet. And this is not our natural bent. We are, as poet Robert Raines put it, like James and John. He says, I am, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. But Jesus came to deliver us from, to set us free from the bonds of selfish promotion and all of our sin. Look what he says in verse 45. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, we must be ransomed from our sin by this servant king. Set free from our selfishness by nothing less than the gospel, the good news of the loving humble, sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus for greatness wannabes like us. There are a number of different ways to think about Jesus' death and what it accomplished. Um, some will say that it's a beautiful moral example, and it is. Others will say that he died as our substitute, bearing our sin. He did. And both of those theories are present in these words. Give his life as a ransom for many. In our place, paying our penalty, he is our substitute. Have you ever embraced Jesus as your substitute, your sin bearer, the one who paid your ransom? One writer said, 
he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. A ransom is a price paid by someone else to set a prisoner or a slave free. This morning, you can trust Jesus' ransoming work on the cross to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Pay for your sins. And you can trust him this morning before you leave this room. Now, if you've already embraced Christ's ransom for you, this morning, Jesus presses us to say, will you follow my example as a humble servant? Will you abandon the pursuit of personal greatness over others to become their servant, their busboy, even their slave, one who exists solely for others, the least important person in the room? So that what Jesus said of himself could also be said of you. He came not to be served, but to serve. This is the way, the way of discipleship to Jesus. And so this week, will you train in this essential element of discipleship and undertake a place of service where you work or in your home? A new act of service where you work or where you live. What would that look like? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There is something greater than greatness being offered to us here. And the next story puts this kind of greatness on display, but from a different angle, not humble servanthood, but humble faith. Um, It's that story that was read and sung about earlier of Jesus' encounter with that blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and he's, he's sitting there by the roadside as Jesus enters into the city of Jericho. He's begging, what else is a first century blind, blind man going to be able to do? He can't see the crowd, but you know, he can feel the rumble of many footsteps. He can taste the cloud of dust. He can hear the crowd of voices. And amidst it all, he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth who's about to pass by. And so In desperate faith, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many, the text says, many rebuked him, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then the unthinkable happens. Amidst all the clamor and the bustle of this great crowd, Jesus hears him. He hears this one blind beggar cry out for mercy. But even more mind-boggling than that, Jesus pays attention to him and it stops him in his tracks and he calls this blind beggar to him so that those who just shushed Bartimaeus now say, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And then the story ends this way, it's the happiest of endings. Verse 51, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is a beautiful encounter. Um, We're not going to touch on much in it this morning. So can I encourage you later this afternoon, just sit. 
read this story and imagine what it would have been like for Bartimaeus to recover his sight physically and to regain his sight spiritually. To go from one who was sitting by the road to one who followed Jesus on the road of discipleship. So this morning, let me just draw your attention to one little detail in this encounter with Jesus. Um, The question that Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. Did you notice it's the exact same question Jesus asked James and John? Look at the verse in your Bible there. It's the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? But here it's answered from a very different place and with a very different heart. Bartimaeus' request comes from the lowest of places. The brothers are requesting the highest of places. Bartimaeus asks for mercy. James and John ask for fame. Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus on the way and James and John want to sit with him in glory. What do you want me to do for you? Now in Bartimaeus' case, wouldn't the answer be obvious, right? He's blind after all, but he's also a beggar, right? And it may well be that all he wants of Jesus is the mercy of coin. He doesn't ask for money which is what you would expect a beggar to do. He asks for a greater miracle. He asks to see. And so this blind beggar sees who Jesus is better than people with two good eyes do. He cries out in faith. He asks a great and desperate mercy of Jesus. And he perseveres in that asking And Jesus is glad to grant this humble, desperate prayer for mercy. It's interesting, when you read the Gospels, this is the one prayer Jesus always answers yes. Whenever someone asks Jesus for mercy, he grants it to them. Now, if Jesus asked you that same question, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer What do you want Jesus to do for you? And what does your honest answer reveal? Pride of place or of person above others or or a desperate, humble cry for your greatest need or for someone else's great need? Professor David Garland has good insight here. He says, what do you want me to do for you? is the most important question God ever asks us and the one to which we most frequently give the wrong answer. We ask for all the wrong things in life. One can think of many examples, but Mark provides two notable ones. Herod asks his dancing stepdaughter essentially the same question. Ask me for anything you want, and her answer? The head of John the Baptist. Pilate asks the crowd the same question, their answer. Barabbas and crucify him? Our answer to this question will reveal whether we want death or life, whether we want to be healed from our blindness or selfishly want to use God to do our bidding and fulfill our own desires. You know, it really reveals whether we will follow Jesus on the road of discipleship or not. What do you 
want me to do for you? Let me invite you to stand with me for closing prayer. And it's a prayer that expresses a heart of yieldedness and submission and humility before God. Um, and I'd like us to pray it together aloud. So if you would, join me, join me in prayer now. Today, O oh Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May your way have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I can never give. I release into your hands my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity. Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth for Jesus' sake. Amen.